Hey, this is Alex Kohler, and you are listening to the Go To Market Mastery Podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about scaling from zero to one million revenue with our guest, Manuel Hartmann. Enjoy. If you can't learn how to close, you better start thinking about another career. And I am deadly serious about that. The reason for the call today, John, is something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Hey, Manuel. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so, so happy that, um, yeah, you said yes so short term and um, so uncomplex and I'm really really happy that you are the guest of my very very first episode yeah, of the go-to-market mastery podcast um, and we are talking today about a very interesting topic um, scaling from zero to one million ARR yeah but we, before we touch into this to topic a bit deeper it would be great if you tell a bit more about yourself what your role is and what you're doing at sales playbooks yeah, happy to. So, um, my role as founder and CEO at Sales Playbook is I founded the company four and a half years ago out of the market need to uh, just help startups with focus on B2B sales to scale from zero to one to 10 million ARR and really happy to focus on the zero to one uh, part today. Um, and yeah, I built it over the last four and a half years, um, 250 plus um, B2B startups as, as clients such as Beekeeper, Pricehubble, in Germany, you know, Toxfix, Kenjo. Uh, and the likes uh, probably quite well. And uh, it emerged out of this need when I was asked as a sales entrepreneur, like you asked, like, what, what is that? Like the facto head of sales, like it's a, as a sales lead team of one, right? Uh, and I got the task from the board, uh, which was then like um, all the investors like Capnemic, um, asking like, hey, fine, like a trainer, coach, implementation partner has done that before. And it was only like, um, not not out of disrespect, but like traditional sales coaches that like focused went from automotive or insurance or telco, and they don't help you to find message market with it. They don't help you to build something from zero to one in a not established business model or revenue model. And like out mm -hmm. of that, I said we found one guy who was specialized in cold calling, 5K for a two-day workshop, um, and we got a PDF with literally the Wolf of Wall Street script from like Sweat Notman. Literally, or, like I still have it somewhere. <laughs> um, like I have penny stocks right now, like and the unique opportunity for you stuff. Like, and uh, I thought like there needs to be a better way. Like, and people always ask me as well, like, hey, where did you learn sales? Like at Accenture or at Tesla or the Airtas games? Like none of these three uh, closes at Tesla and door to door sales. And the third motivation for me was like I want to help as many entrepreneurs as possible scale positive impact. I think that's what I believe in. That like entrepreneurs founders like or there to change things up. Like corporates have like low motivation to do that as like if business as usual is, is going great, it's profitable, it's it's growing, it's defending market position. And that was the, that was the trigger for me to found my own company. That is awesome. Thank you so much for the story. And also happy to see the Wolf of Wall Street script afterwards. Huge fan of the film. Um, so I would say we start directly into the topic. Yeah. So, Starting from scratch yeah, can be challenging for founders, especially when you've never done or never scaled from zero to one million. So what are the initial key steps taken, let's say, after you have the MVP as a founder? 
I think it's, it's really striving for, for message market fit. And it's less about like how much revenue do in the initial deals, but it's really like how do you segment your markets? How do you find your ICP or deal customer profile? What's your sales story? Problem you solve, what you achieve, for whom? Like how do you do concern handling, risk reversal, and like social proof, like early case studies, use cases? And then like how do you go from there to shape your elevator pitch and use scripts accordingly and so on? And from there to build outbound really quickly, less to make money, but like to accelerate the learning cycles. Like how do you have more mm -hmm. conversations with like relevant people that give you relevant feedback and you get closer to this message market fit? Mm -hmm. I think that that's like cool. the yep. most crucial thing from zero to one. Yeah, very interesting. So maybe you could explain because you have maybe also a few founders who don't know what market message market fit is. Um, so what in your opinion is message market fit and when do I know I achieved it? Um, there's no magic bell, bell ringing, right? I mean, like we started like measuring sales maturity, so we can give you a score of like zero to hundred on the message market fit now, like with, with B2B sales self-assessment. I would say like you, typically signs of it is if your sales cycles are collapsing from like quarters to months, if like your people don't discuss like price with you, like how much does this cost, but they see the value immediately. And people want to skip POCs like proof of concept because it's like, okay, I get it. Like that's easy for me to understand and evaluate and like basically buy. And I get exactly like that. This is for me specifically solving my problem. So mm -hmm. that that's all like lagging indicators that you have it, like leading indicators as like, you know, before, or if just like your outbound rates uh, get drastically better, like your op opening rates, you can hack a bit, but your positive replies and your meeting booking rates get much better via cold calls, emails, LinkedIn, whatever channel you choose. And what would you say is a, is a good benchmark there for founders that in terms of maybe response rate, meeting booking rate, and also closing rates? I think like meeting booking rate really depends on the scale that you have. I would not start with like huge campaigns of like 100 people or so. I would really start with like 10 to 50 people. Like that still gives you a little bit of data, but not, not burning the market. And I would aim on cold email for something like 60 to 80% um, open rates. Like that's validating subject line and like sender and like deliverability. And then really aim for like 15 to 50% reply rate, depending a bit on, on batch size. And like I would aim to get like at least like one booked call out of every campaign like that that's showing you that like it's actually working somewhat and you can get feedback on the campaign then as well and on linkedin i would aim for like basically 20 to 30 35 percent acceptance rates uh, like on people that have never heard from you and then like depends a bit on how you optimize like you can purely optimize for acceptance and then be very personalized in your follow-up like we have short video and short voice message for yeah. example and a lot of founders that I'm basically um, currently talking to, so the very first approach that they're taking, because, you know, they're founders, they don't have a lot of time, you know, um, buy uh, like an email sequence outbound tool like Lemlist or um, Woodpecker or whatever, and then just run campaigns as you go. Would you say that this really is the right approach? Or Because I'm literally a fan of always saying, hey, let's first test manually before we automate things. I think the automation is not about scale at this stage and like about like efficiency. It's really about getting data. So what I see founders do is like they send like 20, 30, 50 emails manually. And if I ask them like what's opening reply and booking rate, they can tell me like, I feel it's going well or it's not. And the value in automation is that you actually can like 
run a campaign to 50 people and the A-B test is like 25 get quick question as a subject line and 25 get like hitting your annual targets um, on track and you measure what gets better, like that's the value of, of like using a tool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like as you say, like there's do things that don't scale. Like, I mean, the campaign to like 20 people doesn't necessarily scale, but you still get more data if you use a tool and you, you use an automation approach somewhat than if you do it completely manually. I mean, you, you can, mm-hmm. you can do, you can technically do a spreadsheet and like take all the people that you message and so on, but mental load is really, really high. And like, you, you can use a tool because you want to really validate, is it the messaging? Not like, and you want to keep all other factors relatively, um, separate, like same person, mm-hmm. same day, same channel, same, same cohort and so on. And what do you say is a number of data where you say, okay, I've got it next steps. I can like really say this is working or this is not working. I think I wouldn't see this as a one-off. It's not that like, Hey, like you, you won 10 customers and now ready to scale, just hire like 50 people. Um, it happened during like pandemic and like VC hype and it came crashing down again, right? Like people, people raised like five million seed rounds, 20 million series A's and it's just hired tons of bodies and they let go of like a, a bigger, big fraction of these bodies again, because they were not that ready to scale. So I would always like scale incrementally and then see like, are the numbers changing? For example, staying on the topic of outbound for a bit, if you can run a, a cold email campaign and you to 50 people and you, you, you like reply rate is like 20%. Okay, fine. Like, so 10, 10 people reply. If you run a campaign to hundred people, is reply rate still 20%? Maybe not, but if it's 15%, that's still like 30 people replying instead of 20 so that the unit economics are still working if you have like a fairly uncapped market. But if then reply rate suddenly drops from like 20 to 7% and you're landing in spam and the opening rate just drops from 80 to 50%, then like stop for a bit, right? Like yeah. keep, go back. So it's, it's not like mm-hmm. a check and then go all in, but it's, it's rather like, monitor it very closely and, and iterate quickly. Mm-hmm. And when, when would you say, okay, we start cold calling now, or even the founder starts cold calling, or would you <laughs> even say day one, <laughs> day one, day, right? Day one. So, day one. I mean, I've, so, I've been so like is to, this actually, yeah, I've been to, an, to an, like some startup weekends, right? Where you basically got Friday night to like Sunday afternoon, uh, to go from like introduction and beers, uh, to like validate the pitch and then you win and you win a pair of on shoes or you win like a voucher for like <laughs> a coaching or whatever. But I mean, I've not seen any winner that had less than like 25 interviews, some sort. And we're talking mm-hmm. like Friday night to Sunday morning here. So the excuse mm-hmm. that I don't know, I don't have a product. Like I don't have like a pitch deck. I don't have a website. Like who cares? Like and that, that's mm-hmm. like, that's like, a lame sales rep excuse, quite frankly, like, oh, I cannot set meetings, book meetings because of my product. Like your product has nothing to do with that. Your job mm-hmm. as a founder first and later on as, as like sales reps is to generate demand and to like talk about problems and get enough people to have a conversation with you. And then there's, there's a whole different conversation if you can solve the problem, if the product works, but that's the difference between message market fit and product market fit. Mm-hmm. Message, message market fit is if people want to yeah. buy from you. Product market fit is if your product actually solves the problem the market has. Message market yeah, fit is just that... a bit cheaper and faster because you can change lines on paper and you don't need to refactor your product. Very, very interesting. What would you say 
in terms of this, you know, building the first outbound channels, yeah? What, is, what, are, what are ways where you can track things properly without like spending tons of money on, you know, anal analyst tools or revenue operations tools? Um, do you think that an Excel sheet is act actually enough for the first outbound messages and the first cold calls for tracking data? I will not use um, an Excel sheet. I mean, it, the Excel sheet to track the campaign overall, but not to track individual responses. Like, um, can you can you add like links to the show notes? Like, just asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Cool. Because then, like, um, please find it in the show notes. Credits um, to Alex for including it. Uh, like an outbound sales tracker, and I would just like define uh, the campaigns that you want to run um, there. Where you say like, hey, um, mm. we're doing this like um, on this geography to this company size to this function to this seniority to these industries, and we put in these campaigns like one has ten contacts, one has hundred, and we expect a certain acceptance, reply, booked call rate, and like how many customers we win and how much time we spend, like what's customer acquisition cost, and then based mm. on that, um, we'll actually take take our learnings on what we do next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is also very important, like when you reach message market fit, then building those feedback loops to really iterate and go into direction of product market fit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned it a bit, or I mentioned it a bit with tools. Yeah. This is also a big question that founders are asking, hey, what tools do I need? What tool stack do I need? And I would start with the CRM. So um, this is... All a discussion I always have, yeah, and all the founders love HubSpot. So, um, what is your opinion on this whole topic? So, what's your M? Would you choose or recommend? Um, like we'll be just becoming shortly a HubSpot Gold Pod. I think I can say this because when you release the podcast, like we 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 might not be officially there, but I mean unofficially. And I've been a Salesforce admin for four years of my life. That was my day job at Accenture. Like basically implementing and scaling Salesforce uh, for, for larger companies like Docs level. And I think it really depends a bit on your go-to-market motion. Um, like your, your average contact value typically defines like how you sell. And Pipedrive might be the right solution if you sell like pretty small deals. Like I see this in a lot of like B2C-ish companies. And I see Salesforce being used if you really want to hypergrow. Like if you're WeFox or Personio, for example, I know you have Oli uh, on the podcast. Um, then Salesforce might be, make sense. But if you're normal growth stage, like let's say like taking three to four years from zero to a million ARR, we have some customers doing it in like nine, 12, 15, 18 months, like five plus. Um, then, then HubSpot is probably like the best balance for you on usability, like uh, low investment and, um, and actually getting things done and, and being able mm -hmm. to scale. I think Jason mm -hmm. Lemkin I, earlier yeah. put it that there's is a like, look, I have, always told people like hey you can scale to like one or five or ten million AR but then you will need Salesforce now he sees companies scaling to IPO readiness with HubSpot because the product got much better okay. on the sales side mm -hmm. but if I you know if I want to build like a hyper growth company like you said like this Personios or WeFoxes yeah and I really know okay I'm going to build this company and it's going to be a unicorn or I'm going to die trying you know um yeah. Would you then from scratch use Salesforce? Because, you know, it's like making the switch from HubSpot. And HubSpot gets expensive with all the context. Yeah, you know that. Um, making the switch from HubSpot to Salesforce. This is really this 
disrupting data. It takes like six months or whatever. You need to hire an agency and it's expensive. Yeah. So would you then choose still HubSpot? I, I don't know if you have a sales force affiliation or, or not, but um, I think that there's a few generalisms there as well, like that like HubSpot gets expensive or Salesforce is cheap or like migrations take this. It really depends on maturity. Um, so I think like we, we just like offered in very good faith, faith like a Salesforce to HubSpot migration for a seed stage starter for like less than 15K right now. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. please don't, yeah, like anybody listening to this, like feel free to reach out. Uh, no man, as a sales way, but I think what's really expensive is like investing in a setup that's really hard to maintain, right? Like if you build like, if you hire a RevOps person and then like you have an expensive tech stack that you cannot really maintain and then you have like a website that where you need an agency to maintain story block and then you have like um, a sales, a product which is, needs four people to just maintain DevOps and you haven't made like seven figure ARR and you find out you're growing slower than expected. This is going to be more painful for you to like basically fire five people, like do like a tech migration and do all that when you're in dire conditions because you're growing as fast as you, as you want to, rather than like having a tech setup, which, which enables you to maximum, like to, to focus on core business, to on, on building, building things, selling things and making sure hiring people to build and sell things. And then at a later point, once you're ready, because you, you went from zero to seven figures in 50 months, then switch to Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. So, so to, to, give, to give you like two examples of that, like we had like our first client who scaled from zero to a millionaire or in less than 12 months, that was actually the trigger for outreach because they came from McKinsey, like um, one was COO for like a 2 billion market cap company. And they're like, hey, we, we're thinking of using Salesforce integrated with our warehouse and the data stuff and so on. Should we do it? And it's like, start with HubSpot, you're at zero. And like three years later, when they've been at around like three, four million, so like, hey, I'm still grateful that we didn't do Salesforce because we were just able to scale much faster. And now they might consider it. They're still on HubSpot at 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Very interesting um, opinion on that. Um, so CRMs aside, there's of course tons of tools, other tools that you need. Can you narrow them down maybe a bit and give us a clear overview of When I start as a founder, what are really the tools I need at first? Right. Um, I mean, CRM is a must-have. And um, like GitHub or Notion or Asana or Excel files or Founders Head are not CRMs. So we, we, we yeah. know a client that has the CRM on GitHub, <laughs> really, and they use like buckets for <laughs> opportunities. Um, I think like, so you need a CRM. Pipedrive sales for Subspot. Um, we see people using Closer Soho, but the point is that you have something that when they bring on people that they're, they're able to ram quickly, you're able to get support quickly. So you, know, you get the best CRM in the market and nobody knows it. It's going to be harder for you to ram new people and like have people adopting to it and integrating. Um, the second thing that you need is like one thing to, to capture feedback. Like we use Jotform. We're really happy with it. Jotform, Typeform, same, same. But where you're able to nimble get market feedback, like client success and so on, you can go like, as you say, like intercom, Swora, whatever thing. Um, but like start really easy, start with something that's really easy to maintain no code. Then you want to have something for outbound on the channel that works probably best for you, like LinkedIn, email, call, call, um, whatever tool is most useful for you, pick that, pick your poison. And you want to have something which enables you to like basically sign contracts. Like DocuSign, EchoSign, that's more 
more elaborate solutions um, like better proposals and so on. We just um, went from better proposals to HubSpot CPQ before we basically had Google Docs and, and DocuSign. And before that, we had our own applications where I could basically in three clicks check out for like 20K. <laughs> like we, we literally had 20K deals signed like with a checkout button. So it works. We also closed 20K deals on a job form. It, it works until somebody has questions on this one line and what the exact scope is of that. So set that up properly. What you don't need on this journey from zero to one, and I think that's also important, what you don't need is like you don't need like a really sophisticated sales engagement platform if it's for me like Salesoft or so. You also don't need a really complicated RevOps platform like Chargebee, Zora or so, and you don't need a sales forecast solution like Clarios, sales enablement like Highspot, like really the stuff that starts creating, in some cases, tremendous value upon like Series B. And you also don't need a customer success software because you don't have so many customers that it's it's not you're not able to put them on Lebon view on a Google Sheet and do the cohort analysis really much more nimble and keep your CRM a single source of truth. Okay. So and I hope that's okay if I if I elaborate a bit on these points, but I think for the people listening yeah, to this on zero to one journey, this should give you like a really nice overview in like two minutes each or so. I was like, okay, got it, got it, check, check, check. And like, okay. Saves me mm -hmm. probably five to 50k investment <laughs> and in in terms of maybe to touch on this in terms of the outbound lead generation tools what would you say are your top five that founders absolutely can go and where you say fits um i think this really depends on on your case on your go to market motion if you have like 500 target accounts or if you have like really something like SendGrid that you you want to maintain a newsletter to like fifty thousand people I think that that's really depend on the go-to-market motion and um, feel free to to basically put that to the show notes if people have questions like happy to discuss on, on a one-on-one -on -one call. Mm -hmm. I'm just yeah. a bit skeptical always to say like, hey, like this tool is the best period because it really depends on your case. Yeah, okay. So just hit Manuel up on LinkedIn or I'm also going to put your email address in so people can ask questions um, Yeah, if they have any. Yeah. Um, Another point, yeah, that uh, I or you already touched on is onboarding. So hiring, yeah, in in further sense. Um, when would you say do founders sh or should founders make their first hires? Because I always hear, yeah, I'm going to hire a founders associate and he's doing all the cold calling for me, <laughs> um, and most of the time, it fails. Yeah, it fails. Right. Um, so what would you say, how would you approach this? What to hire, who to hire, and when to hire? Yeah, very interesting question. And like, I think like roughly 90%, like not, not statistic data, but of first sales hires in startups fail. Uh, that's terrible. Um, I think it comes mostly because there's so many variables. Like who's the founder? Like how they, how, like where is the founder? Like and, and putting efforts and like rigor into onboarding. And like, who's the sales rep you get? Like who's to set the client segment and, and what's the maturity of sales enablement and like just the assets in place. Uh, I would say like the sales rep is the last variable you want to change. So once you have like the buyer persona and the product, like the market offering and the channel and like the, the buyer journey and all that mapped out, right? Then you bring on like um, a sales rep. And then I think it's your choice. Do we really get like, um, get like a sales pioneer, like a go-to-market pioneer. That's really like your co-pilot on that, you could say. And that person helps you to build the plane and like sell like metaphorically. 
um, which is which is much better than if you have a really like a founders associate, entrepreneur in residence, like junior, STR, whatever. It's going to be really hard for them because you basically bring on board like a flight attendant on a plane that's not fully built. Nobody's really sure where it will fly and the, the chance of explosion is really high. And we often see like to stay in the metaphor, we have like a yellow card system internally, um, but I think here it's useful is if the pilot cannot fly the plane and just thinks like, I don't enjoy flying, I enjoy building planes and I'm not done here. I'll bring on like a junior flight attendant and expect that person to say like, come to the cockpit, you fly the plane. Now I drop off, I build more planes. The plane goes down. And like that yeah. the plane dies and like uh, the co-pilot dies and everybody on board dies and that's not good. So, so rather yeah. invest, rather invest like twenty to hundred k into sales enablement, into making sure you build the right assets, and then like ramp the first one to three hires with like yourself and and the assets if you've done this stuff before, or like then with an external party that's making sure these people are successful. Because that's also that's also employer branding. I was, I think, the the third or fourth first sales hire at the machine learning startup. I built up sales, and quite frankly, I also pleading guilty to this. Like I. I was like, I'm going to do much better than before. Um, I closed 50 deals myself. So I won 50 customers. Like it was like relatively narrow niche, like B2B sales for startup founders and enablement around that. And we had even the offering. And then I brought on like a junior sales rep and we, we kept our deals as a probably 10 K because it was hard for him to sell to founders, like more than like five figure deals on trust. And he's our very successful senior STR, senior BDR, uh, like a Swiss leading B2B SaaS scale up with higher eight figure ARR and is really happy there. But for, for that person, it's much mm -hmm. better to be in like a more stable company than in, in absolute chaos from zero to one. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, and I think it's well said, um, to clarify that almost bias that's out there uh, of hiring like this founders associate and I love the plane building anecdote also, uh, Really, really Credit, nice. Credits to Alan Chirovina, um, like one of our top sales masterminds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah credit to him. Um, so now that we have message market fit, yeah, we have the first tires, we have our tool stack um, combined. So now we want to really achieve product market fit. What is, what are the, what are the most important things of getting there? I think it's really. Again, like to retrade message market fit, like before product market fit. I mean, people, people always just product market fit is the most commonly known and people sometimes ask them, I know talking a lot about message market fit. Why? It's like, because you, you cannot change your pro, like you want to get message market fit first and then build the product for that. Because otherwise like the, the risk of you building exactly the right product, what solves the, the, the product, like the problem of your ideal customer profile is really hard because your ICP might change and your sales story might change and your market segments might change. And then building, rebuilding the product is much more expensive. It's going to cost you probably six or even seven figures rather than you changing your sales copy like two, three times in a quarter and, and going through that. I think the key components are really that, uh, you, you really like nail down like your hypothesis and you define smart experiments, like specific, measurable, actionable, relevant, time bound, like objectives, key results, initiatives. And then you measure if that works out and, um, it's a relevant initiative and it, like you actually say like, Hey, we expect to in the next four weeks, get this many signups to our webinar on this topic. 
and we run two webinars and we see who, where more, more people sign up of that ICP and then we'll decide like what use case we're going to focus on. And the mm -hmm. time-bound component is essential here because otherwise you, we found this always lie to ourselves. Right? It's like, yeah, yeah, just one more month, just one more cohort, just one more campaign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a book that I can recommend for this is the McKinsey way, because it's like a very, very yeah. consultative approach that you just told we're building hypotheses and then proving yep. or disproving them. Um, yep. So uh, I'm putting also in the sh show notes, we got a lexicon down there already. Um, so actually product market fit, when do you know, or could you explain to the audience, when do we know that we have product market fit? There's, there's so many ways how you can approximate it. Uh, like I think Wes Bush like, has this rule of like once 40% of people um, answer to your question like how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use our solution. It's like very disappointed, um, disappointed or totally fine. If 40% plus answer very disappointed, but that's, that's not a B2B approach. That, that's like more a B2C product-led model, right? I think it's like in, in B2B sales, like I'm talking like 10K to like 100K deal size up to like a million. It's really much more uh, about renewal rate, for example. So I, for example, I went to my board members like, hey, Jerry, we, we like, we tripled customer lifetime from four to 14 months, right? So like even a bit more than that. I was like, yeah, man, how did you do it? Did people renew three times or did you just like sell annual contracts? I'm like, yeah, we sell annual contracts. Okay, so now we established that you can sell annual deals. More power to you. We know that you can sell. Um, that doesn't prove product market fit. So product market fit is really if people are amazingly happy with your product, so they renew, they expand, and they, they, they refer to other clients and they're amazingly successful with it. So it's more net revenue retention, testimonials, and referrals. And the second thing that that's, that's like once you close the customer and upfront, I think it's more if people really understand it that well, that's the messaging component that they want to skip POC. So like your sales cycles, when go from quarters to weeks, um, your conversion rate uh, goes up, your average contact value goes up because people see more value and your customer acquisition costs therewith go down. I love the answer and I'm glad that you didn't say 1 million ARR. <laughs> no. No, I, I know, yeah. I know um, scale-ups with like seven, eight-ish million ARR, like they don't have product market fit. And they exchange yeah, their absolutely. whole like go-to-market teams like three times and it's painful and like they've been 12 years on the market. And if they would nail this down, I think this company could easily make 20 million, like triple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that's of course important um, to achieving 1 million revenue or ARR is customer retention. So how um, or what retention strategies, how do you approach this? How do you ensure that customers not only convert, but they stay loyal? I think it's, it starts like, and I mean, I'm, I'm a sales guy, right? Like there's other people who specialize in customer success, very few of them. I mean, we organized the customer success summit, we get 500 plus signups, even if you're not known for that in that field. Um, so I, I, I take them but the answer where like, creates the most value like on, on the sale, on the side before closing. I think it's really about closing, like winning ideal customer profile clients because they, it's not just about dreading, dredging them into like cl closing a deal with you, but it's actually closing the right people that are then going to be successful with you. If you, if you close the wrong deals, right? Like, I mean, it's just like a pain for customer success from day one and it will be this constant struggle that a customer says basically this is not the ideal product for me and the customer success is like i kind of agree but could you still renew 
um, that's not fun. So I think mm -hmm. yeah. net revenue retention is also a consequence of working with the right customers, solving the right problems with the right offering, and not primarily as a function of customer success doing an amazing job or not. Mm. Just, just yeah. from the sales side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and also a topic that's very, very underrepresented here in DAF, yeah, um, as well we, as like RevOps with RevOps. Yeah, 100%. I yeah. mean, we just had like a um, scale-up customer they do about um, uh, seven-figure ARR because it's public case studies. So they, they do, they increase like um, from the top 100 customers, like plus 60% on the ICP customers. And they increase their net revenue retention 275% um, on top 20 customers. So that's huge, right? Like a net revenue retention, just for people doing the math of, of 200% means like if Alex is a customer of mine and does like 100K right now, he will do 200K next year. So I actually don't only need to not win one new customer because Alex churns. I actually have two Alexes ne next year. So as long as I keep 200%, I grow 100% year over year without winning ever one next customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Greatly explained in my opinion. Um, and then last question, yeah, because we're already running out of time, um, is what advice would you give for founders if you only need to phrase it in a few sentences and what does the future hold for you and uh, sales playbooks? Also, advice to founders um like hustle hustle hard yourself like on things where um like it's worth like internalizing and you can you can do it right like it's just like work and, and create the google sheet from scratch if you just want to understand like your revenue model for example partner up on things like put your ego aside where you can be three times faster and three times better with people that that like do this for a living and do it did it 200 times so I built like my first web WordPress site and then I built the Webflow site myself as well. And then like we did it like technically and before we gave it to like an agency who does this for a living and it's so much better now. And we should have done this like 18 months earlier. So don't like, be really aware of like the value of your time and energy and focus and the opportunity costs of, of scaling slower on your enterprise value and just like invest like four figures amounts, five figure amounts where it makes sense for you to, where it really helps you to scale quickly. Yeah. And the demo's question, one question two, like future of sales playbook. Um, I've never been more confident that we have like a viable path to scale from like lower seven figures to 10 million annual revenue because really what we do now, like help people generate qualified pipeline, close bigger deals faster and scale sales efficiently. Um, it's really hitting the three core value drivers of any B2B SaaS business in, in like the, the revenue motion. And um, we see that also with clients investing now like five figures, not per year with us, but per quarter and MPS going up and people doing really nice referrals, quite frankly. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. And uh, to the audience, if you have any questions to me or to Manuel, um, hit us up via email or LinkedIn, everything in the show notes. Um, and thank you so much for listening.